Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. On this episode, we're really happy to welcome Andrew Borovic and Greta Fenner. Andrew is the Executive Director of Transparency International Ukraine, and Greta is the Managing Director of the Basel Institute of Governance. The two discuss with Matthew Stevenson the role of anti-corruption efforts during the war in Ukraine and the role that corruption plays in the reconstruction efforts. We hope you enjoy the episode and we are back after our summer break in September. Greetings. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. And today on the podcast, I am delighted to be joined by two guests, Andre Borovic, who is the executive director of Transparency International's Ukraine chapter, and Greta Fenner, who is the managing director of the Basel Institute on Governance. Uh, I'm really happy to be able to welcome both of you to the podcast today to talk about the work that you guys have been doing about anti-corruption in the context of the war in Ukraine and thinking ahead to post-war reconstruction. Let me add before we begin, I mentioned that Andre is the executive director of TI's Ukraine chapter. I currently serve on the board of directors for uh, TI Ukraine. I figure I should, I don't think that will affect this interview in any way, shape or form, but I figure it's the core sort of thing, especially on an anti-corruption podcast that uh, ought to be mentioned uh, up front. So um, with that out of the way, let me welcome you both to the podcast. And let me start out by inviting each of you to talk a little bit about your own backgrounds in this area, how you became interested in the topic of uh, corruption and, and anti-corruption. And uh, yeah, and then how maybe a little bit about how you came to, to work together. So, Andre, may I, may I start with you? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, my background uh, is, is not so wide or deep. Um, actually, after the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, at that time, I was working as an investment analyst. I was never dreaming working on uh, in an NGO, even an international NGO, or even thinking about the corruption. So the only thing I was dealing with is someone's money and where the best place to put them. But then after the Revolution of Dignity, I uh, joined the team of reformers uh, in the general prosecutor's office. And in less than a year, we were all kicked out from prosecutor's office because except of us, like a small group of support to the one of the deputy heads of general prosecutor's office, the general prosecutor and the president, who is actually appointed in the general prosecutor, were not really interested in uh, the reform. And I was so mad uh, at all that system by that time. So I just left uh, the office to nowhere. And then there was an opportunity to join the TI's uh, office in Ukraine. They they just opened it in Kiev. And uh, I became the deputy executive director just because I really was mad about everything that was going on in the general prosecutor's office. Uh, so on today, by the way, on the 21st of July, uh, is my exactly six years of work within the TI Ukraine. So that's what 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 I do, uh, fighting the corruption and trying to put the pressure on the state officials or helping some of the state officials who are our allies, who is always allies among the government, to do something good in order to uh, decrease the level of corruption within the Ukraine. Greta, man, invite you also to, to say a little bit about your background, how you came to be working on anti-corruption issues generally, but maybe also how you came to be working specifically on issues related to Ukraine and began your collaborations with Andre. 
Sure. Thank you, Matthew. And thanks for, for having me on the on the podcast. And congratulations, Andre, for six years with TI. We're very glad you made the move from the investment banking to the good guys, as we like to uh, differentiate ourselves. Of course, that is um, not meant to be 100% serious uh, comment. Uh, I've got uh, something like 25 years in anti-corruption and my personal so the story is that um, I studied international relations and very quickly became very, very interested in the whole challenge of underdevelopment or the, you know, the differences of, of levels of development and in the world. And, and it doesn't take you very long to come across the world corruption, although that was at a time when it was far less commonly referred to than, than today. And, and that's where I started working first at OECD uh, in charge of anti-corruption programs in the Asia Pacific region. And then uh, later, um, some, what is it now? A long time ago, 17 years ago, my goodness, uh, became the first director and now managing director of the Basel Institute on Governance. And I think this, the, the time that I, I spent at the OECD in the Asia Pacific region in a way connects to today and to the work that we're doing with TI Ukraine in the sense that we were um, working in the Asia-Pacific region on anti-corruption at the time of the, um, the Pacific Ocean uh, tsunami. And, uh, and of course, uh, there, the topic of corruption and corruption in emergency relief operations was perhaps the first time properly looked at with a degree of success, I should say. But certainly when I look at the situation in, in Ukraine, where we're going to look at an absorption of a huge amount more money, those memories came back to me and made me realize how important it is to put uh, corruption center stage in, in any reconstruction effort, in particular in Ukraine. Um, the connection with Ukraine is a different one, and that also dates back to the revolution of dignity, where the Bosnian Institute of Governance at the time was asked by the then prosecutor general of Ukraine to assist with uh, the recovery or the search for and ultimately recovery of assets that were suspected to be uh, have been stolen by former President Yanukovych. And ever since then, we've been working with um, sometimes more, sometimes less success with Ukrainian authorities on that task. And, and through that, of course, we got uh, connected with organizations like Andres and, and have been working in Ukraine in one way or another, trying to support um, anti-corruption efforts. And I think when the war broke out, Honestly, corruption was still at the forefront of my thinking. And, and, and when we started talking reconstruction, I looked at the money that we were talking about. My fears uh, grew more and more. And we reached out um, to Andre and said, uh, do we want to join forces to, to, to do our best to contribute to um, avoiding corruption um, becoming a bigger problem than it already is in Ukraine? So that's sort of my short story. In a, just a moment, I want to, I want to, talk to you guys about the work that you've been doing specifically on trying to push for uh, stronger anti-corruption controls in the context of relief money and post-war reconstruction money. Um, but before we get there, I'm actually curious about how um, the outbreak of, I guess, I'm not sure how we should refer to it because I sometimes want to say the outbreak of the war, but my Ukrainian friends often remind me the war actually started well before February 2022, in the sense that there was the annexation of Crimea, and then there was ongoing fighting in eastern Ukraine, not just from Russian-backed separatists, but from actual Russian soldiers, though though unacknowledged. So when I say when the war broke out in February uh, 2022, I don't want to um, minimize the significance of the conflict that was already underway. But when the when the overt Russian invasion of, of Ukraine occurred in, in February 2022, um, obviously, uh, anti-corruption had had for many years been a high priority in Ukraine. Um, 
Andre, you and I had had the opportunity to engage in this issue a bit uh, because obviously I was serving on the board of, of TI Ukraine and still am. Um, one of the things I'm interested in is how the uh, invasion, the February 2022 invasion changed, if it did change, anti-corruption work in Ukraine during that time. I take it for the first month or so when it looked like Kiev was under serious threat of being invaded. I, I, I sort of imagine that was all anyone could could think about. But unfortunately, this the conflict has been dragging on now. So I'd love to hear maybe principally from you, Andre, how the day to day work of of TI Ukraine has changed, or if it has changed in light of the the very difficult circumstances. Um, it's uh, changed a lot, specifically in the first two months. Uh, I mean, like in February uh, till uh, probably beginning of May. We were not doing really much on anti-corruption, so all of us uh, put our efforts for volunteering. Uh, we, we fortunately we had enough funds in order to supply and buy necessary things as for the people, uh, or I mean the civilians and to the military. Of course, nothing um, and no weapon, only prote protective gears and other stuff. And we were doing all of this and a lot. Uh, first couple of weeks, probably uh, I, I was always staying in Kiev and a couple of my colleagues as well. So when um, in March, actually, Kiev was almost empty and most of our colleagues just left Kiev. Uh, I would say out of 40 people, about 10 of them were uh, out of the country. They went to Poland, Italy, Germany and other countries. Most of us stayed in, uh, in Ukraine, but in the western part of Ukraine because of security reasons. So unless everybody was safe, we were doing not much. Uh, we joined the fight uh, on the information sphere. I mean, that trying to persuade uh, the politicians in Europe and the US uh, to do their work and sanctions faster and to spread the word about what is happening in Ukraine more and more. That was done actually by all the civil society. We have a few colleagues who actually joined the army and we supporting them. And we now even continue supporting on the volunteering basis um, uh, the army and uh, the territories where people need our help, where people still need like basic needs, you know, like blankets and food and other stuff. Uh, but starting from May, we, we came back a little bit to fighting with the corruption. And usually when like foreign journalists asking me, well, how is it about the corruption in Ukraine now? I'm, I'm reminding them that Ukraine now have a huge gap uh, in the state finances. It's about five to six billion dollars per month. So there is no money in the state budget because economy went down uh, dramatically. So no money, no problems, no money, no corruption. So there is nothing to steal from the state budget. Uh, the more money there will be, the more problems there will be. That's why we now, um, because we are under the martial law, by the way, and uh, the, the thing that I was in Lugano, it was uh, only because I had a 10-day permission to leave and come back to Ukraine. If I, um, So I signed a specific letter about that. So we're thinking about the future because actually reconstruction is happening even now. Uh, it's kind of a relief stage because the winter is coming, despite this is kind of a memo from uh, one of the TV series, but really the winter is coming. Lots of civic and energy infrastructure is destroyed, uh, not accidentally by Russians, but directly by Russians. They wanted to do, to do this. So uh, there is already some funds which are disseminated around the country and they need to be rebuilt. Okay, we cannot really control all of that now because lots of 
online systems and open data, things which were um, quite widespread in Ukraine before the war are now closed because of security reasons. For example, just only a week ago, or maybe two, uh, our government decided to come back to competitive public procurement contracts because uh, from the very first day of the war, there was a decision from the parliament that we do not need competitive public procurements and we do not need to put everything live and online reporting. And this was obvious because we need everything now. We cannot wait like three a month or two months to gather all the offers and all these kind of things. But we are trying to come, come back at least at those territories where there is no active uh, fights now, though it's probably only half of the country, because it, comparing to 2014, now the fights are not on the, uh, the east of the country. There were fights from in the north, and there is still at the south. The main security threat is the rockets from uh, Russia, which they uh, sent to us like thousands and thousands kilometers from our border. So there is a security issues. But we we trying to think no more on the reconstruction, which will uh, go afterwards. Specifically, why? Because our government announced that we will need $750 billion to reconstruct the country. But our or, or my, my personal interest in that, that I don't want to be I don't want to live in a country which will only rebuild what was already just destroyed. Because the things which were destroyed, this is where the things from the Soviet era. I don't want those horrible buildings, horrible technologies just renewed. I want the new country, the new way of thinking, and this needs lots of involvement. And I think that next 10, 15 years, most of the NGOs will uh, be connected to this topic because this is not only about monitoring, but this is about the influence and saying that Come on, guys, anti-corruption is important, so please let's do them their work. Come on, guys, all the work for the people which you are doing is for the people. This is about amalgamated communities. This is about the citizens of the cities. Uh, they need also to have their voice. So it's about inclusion in this way. And there is lots of work which need to be done. And part of this work can be done even now during the martial law. That's why uh, we also advocate for that the reforms need to move on. And of course, they cannot go like 100% uh, power level, but they, there is many things which can be done now. At least the appointment of the leadership of anti-corruption institutions. And I'll just remind to those who may be familiar with this, that out of five anti-corruption institutions which we have in Ukraine, four of them do not have a permanent leadership. So, and uh, I think this is unacceptable in the times of uh, the martial law because uh, corruption is actually one of the tools which was used for many years by Putin and uh, by Moscow and their regime into influence the internal politics in Ukraine because corruption is eradicating the country. It's ruining the state as a, as a, I mean, in the wider sense, as a huge institution. And we need to work on this even now. Uh, of course, taking into account that there is many information attacks from the Russian side and many comments like that one, um, I, I, just my, my last my last thought, a month ago, I guess, there were lots of interest from the Western journalists about the weapon which is coming from our Western partners to Ukraine, trying to find out that uh, whether it was stolen and uh, resold at the black market. I once asked one of the journalists, how can you imagine just, for example, HIMARS or any other huge tanks can be just resold like this, and they then appear somewhere where? Somewhere in the middle of the Africa? Then he asked me about the rifles. I said, okay, rifles, 
probably can be some things, but there were not so many of them passed to Ukraine, maybe a few thousand. We more need just a bullets and heavy weapon rather than a small guns, which can, if you're interested whether there is a stealing of the, of the small weapon, it, it exists in every country. And by the way, CPI said that for the last 10 years, there is not much progress in fighting the corruption globally, despite that CPI is heavily criticized by many and by Matthew as well sometimes. But this is the only existing tool which allow us to compare corruption around the globe. So the, the question of the, about the corruption uh, is not, uh, cannot be forgotten in Ukraine. It's, we can say that it is a little bit sleeping. And the reason for this is that there is no money in the so I want to, this is, that's really helpful. I want to um, ask a bit more about the kinds of reforms or the kinds of measures that you and your collaborators are advocating to address the anticipated problem of uh, corruption once money starts flowing in. I think the point you just made is a, is a, is a good one, uh, which is that right now when there's very little to steal, corruption becomes less of a problem. But once the, once the spigot turns on, maybe already it's gonna happen as the, as the winter approaches, but then I think you're, you're suggesting is in the future when we all hope, we all pray the conflict ends uh, and Ukraine succeeds in, in repelling the invasion from its borders, there's gonna be a massive uh, reconstruction effort involving huge amounts of money, and that's going to be a, an extraordinary temptation. We've seen this over and over again um, in the context of disaster relief, whether we're talking about natural disasters like a tsunami or the COVID pandemic was a, as a recent example of this, or uh, disasters caused by human beings. Disaster relief money is often a temptation for organized crime groups, kleptocrats, and, and others. What I wanted to ask uh, is, to, is for each, maybe if each of you can say a little bit about the kinds of things that you think need to be done to um, reduce the severity of that problem. And there are two different audiences, I would imagine, for your advocacy. There's the audience within Ukraine, and Andre, you already addressed part of this with the need to appoint leadership of the key institutions, but I imagine there are other things that um, you would want the Ukrainian government to do to address this risk. But then I would imagine another audience would be the international donor community, right? What should international donors be doing to try to ensure that the relief money that they will hopefully be providing in copious amounts is um, spent appropriately? So, so maybe we could address each of these. And I'm not sure if this is the right division of labor, but I was thinking perhaps, Andre, you might elaborate a bit more on what you're advocating within Ukraine to the Ukrainian government that it do. And then maybe Greta, if I might ask you to join the conversation by talking a little bit about what the advocacy agenda ought to be with respect to the international donor community, Ukraine's international partners who might wanna provide support, but who might be worried about misuse of, of funds or other resources provided. So maybe Andrea can ask you to address that first, then Greta, I can turn it over to you. Yeah, I will just only start saying that the, the issue of the corruption, despite even that we are in the war, uh, was one of the main obstacles for our country to become, to receive this candidacy status uh, in the European Union. These questions were raised by a number of countries uh, like Netherlands, Denmark and others. So the countries who are usually uh, considered as much less corrupted, one of the less lesses corrupted around the globe. Um, but you, you, Ukraine did lots of good job for the since the revolution identity for so for the last eight years. We now have uh, anti-corruption infrastructure. So the problem, but uh, there is still lots of different, you know, minor problems um, which influence in influence uh, the general process of fighting the corruption. Uh, 
First of all, as I, I said, it's of course the leadership selection. Uh, hopefully, uh, in, in the next few days, the leadership of the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office will be selected. This is probably one of the, you know, this is just a huge shame for, for Ukraine not having the head of SAPO for almost two years for now. Uh, and this is a question only one selection, but hopefully other three institutions will also receive their leadership. Um, another key thing which we are advocating is independence uh, and not only political, but also operational independence of the anti-corruption institutions. So uh, SAPO for now, they are the part of the general prosecutor's office and uh, they rely on the operational issues fully on the general prosecutor's office. And we believe that it needs to be kind of a separated. It can stay within the prosecutorial uh, structure of Ukraine, but even operationally, they need to be independent. Um, um, National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, who also now have a, a temporary head because uh, uh, the first and the only head of uh, NABU, actually his uh, mandate ended on 15th of April. Uh, and he spent fully seven years as a head of NABU. And I, I would say for Ukraine, it's a kind of a record because uh, this is probably the one case when the person who I appointed to be the head of the law enforcement agency, and he spent full his term without any dismissals, despite even that there were lots of tries from the members of the parliament, even during the Poroshenko times, uh, to dismiss him. So NABU need more power. They need more power um, on uh, and need more instruments like a wiretapping, independent one, because there is a law which saying that they're supposed to have this function separately from other institutions, but they still rely on, on the um, special security service of, of Ukraine or the police who have these rights. Um, and of course, if uh, the politicians is saying that no, this anti-corruption institutions doesn't work, look what they did, uh, there is still, we are named corrupted country, we are perceived as a corrupted country. Okay, guys, if you have questions to anti-corruption institutions, maybe you should not just every time try and politically to influence them, please do the audit. The audit is a part of every law of all these law enforcement agencies. Um, hire the commission, uh, let them work, let's do their independent conclusions, give them access to the data, and then, uh, according to these conclusions, you can make the decisions whether this anti-corruption institution is working or not. And actually, by the way, only audit is a part of um, kind of a performance evaluation of law enforcement is only within the anti-corruption institution. There is no any kind of audit within general prosecutor's office or police. There is some kind of within other institutions which were established just recently, just last two years, but they never actually worked. Currently, for example, there is ongoing audit of the National Agency of Prevention of Corruption. It, it, it was paused because of war, but as I know, the commission where there is lots of international experts uh, they will continue their wor work, uh, I think, upcoming uh, weeks. And uh, by September, we expect in the final uh, conclusions uh, made by them. So uh, actually, independence and lack of uh, pressure on anti-corruption institutions is one part of the story. Another part is Ukraine was really one of the leading countries regarding the beneficial ownership registry and open data. Uh, we truly I believe that open data and open information, when it is transparent and public, it decreases the possibility for corruption. Yes, it's not talking about the top level corruption, maybe medium or, or um, uh, petty corruption, because uh, people, when they know that they can be, that they are 
uh, inappropriate behavior, let's name it so, uh, can be seen by everybody, they, they will think twice or even three times before doing that. So, and this is from one hand. From the other hand, in Ukraine, we have a very strong school of investigative journalists. So they using all this open data to investigate the crimes, uh, not only corruption, but in general crimes. And uh, they always ready to make another material and to publish it. So openness of the information should be, that's what we're doing even now, trying to persuade the government that we need to evaluate the risk of clothing the information and evaluate the risk of opening all of that information regarding the security issues. That's like number one issue. But we truly believe that, for example, closed register of the uh, court decisions, how, how it can help to secure the country uh, in the face of uh, aggression with Russia. We don't see it. That's why, by the way, a month ago, they reopened it. So everybody can now see all the court decision. Because if the, there is some, some issues which the judge thinks can influence um, the security uh, of the country, he can classify by his decision that it will not be public. So um, anti-corruption institutions and open information will bring us uh, luck to be less corrupted then, then we are, and to move on with anti-corruption reform. That's how we see it. Maybe I can continue on the international front and just uh, obviously supporting everything that Andre has said. And many of these points were made in this short paper that TI Ukraine and the Basel Institute published at the occasion of the Lugano conference. And I think you know numerous other organizations are kind of drilling down the same the same points. Maybe just one, if I can come back to sort of the mix between domestic and international. I think it's it's really important that we understand that corruption risks. It, like we talk about a chain linked risk approach or risk assessment approach, because Andrew was talking about, for example, rebuilding Ukraine better, right? So corruption risks already start when you define needs. Uh, where, where are the greatest needs? And does it mean just rebuilding that building because it was always there and it suits someone because he can get that big contract? Or does it actually mean we don't need that building anymore or, or that huge school? We might need 10 smaller cool schools, which are maybe less interesting if you want to make a big kickback and so on. So just understanding that these corruption risks exist throughout the process from the very, very beginning all the way, all the way to the end. And I think donors need to also be really uh, acknowledging this. Uh, I think if you look at the international community, it's really challenging to talk about this because everyone wants to help Ukraine. There's no doubts about it, right? Talking about corruption is not a favorite topic. You know, corruption is not a favorite topic because it's hard at the moment for all the right reasons to be critical of Ukraine. It's hard to say, look, corruption is a problem in Ukraine. It's not only in Ukraine a problem. It's a problem in many countries. And when there is reconstruction, there is always a corruption problem, no matter in which country. So I think being being reasonable in this dialogue and not shying away from it, but of course, making it clear that it's not targeting Ukraine specifically, but the reconstruction efforts is really important because not talking about it is really not a is really not a solution. Andre was talking at the domestic level about the need for 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 transparency and access to data, and and that was sort of in relation to investigative journalists, for example. But the same holds true for this reconstruction effort. And I was making a slightly provocative comment on a panel that Andre and I were both at in Lugano, and I said, you know, we all talk about the role of civil society and how important they will be to monitor and and to be the watchdogs over this reconstruction effort, you know, but. 
this will be a huge task. And so my demand for the international community, and of course, also the, the Ukrainian government, is to make it possible for civil society to be that monitor. How do you make it possible is by being 100% transparent about everything to do with the reconstruction efforts and ideally not scatter this information on 15 different websites and tools and platforms and so on, but to be really central and well-organized because you can really, I was being provocative and said, we will know by the way you distribute the information about reconstruction, whether you're actually serious about allowing civil society to be a watchdog or not. The more scattered it is, the more we will have the impression that you're not really interested in in, in monitoring and, and, and that kind of function. So I think this is really important. And to be honest, when I was in Lugano, I did not get the impression there was great coordination already. Put it that way, it could have been better. And so I'm really worried about that because it's not helping if, you know, countries are trying to fight over influence by way of reconstruction efforts, because that is truly the wrong moment to play geopolitics. I think they need to be really sincere to know what they demand from the government of Ukraine in terms of anti-corruption performance. We've seen it in the past when, you know, IMF loans were linked to certain anti-corruption deliverables. That was pretty good, but sometimes I feel like it fell a little bit short in terms of we demand an institution or we demand a law instead of saying we demand an institution and a law that is being applied, properly resourced and used. You know, so I think they need to be they need to be clear in their demands and, and enforce them, although it's going to be really hard. And then maybe the last point in terms of, of international support is with regard to the recovery of stolen assets. And we have two points here, which we also pointed out in our program, in our paper. One is, of course, there are still significant assets stolen from Ukraine by Ukrainian oligarchs and politicians that are spread around the world. And uh, Ukrainian authorities are struggling to get these back. Uh, for lack of capacity, for the for, for for now being completely you know focused on other work, but also because asset recovery is incredibly difficult, and Ukraine is not the only country struggling with that. So international community needs to come together and help them more. I know they have helped, but they need to more help them more on these cases. And then the second part, of course, is the issue of using assets that were frozen under sanctions in relation to the war and using those assets for, for reconstruction. And we've heard uh, a lot of, you know, very credible and, and understandable political debate about this saying, you know, Russia needs to pay for the reconstruction. And I absolutely get that. What we need to be careful about is to make sure that this discussion is held in a, in a way and solutions are found in such a way that we don't actually undermine the rule of law. So we need to find, you know, legally solid rule of law compliant, human rights compliant ways to freeze and actually confiscate those assets and then return them and use them for the reconstruction of, of Ukraine. But it needs to be solid legal work and not political, because if it's purely political, we are actually going to end up undermining the rule of law, which is so essential for, for the fight against corruption. So this debate needs to be held, but it needs to be held in a, in a, you know, in a, in a technical way and not in a political way. So these were probably my main, my main points for, for the international domain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just want to comment on the one of the points is about about international organizations and uh, those conditionalities. Uh, I absolutely agree that uh, let's say the way they used them was not perfect. The only my question to what Greta said is that it's much it's much easier to evaluate 
um, whether the law was voted or not. Yeah, how it is influenced, we need more, more time. And this should be part of some, some um, I mean, global, more global cooperation with the country. Because the number, because honestly, since 2014, without all of those conditionalities, for association agreement with the European Union, visa liberalization plan, uh, number of IMF uh, contracts which we had, I doubt that we would have even 20% of those reforms which we, we, we have now. I remember I was at one of these IMF World Bank meetings, uh, I feel not mistaken, in, in Washington. And um, one of the, and there was kind of a session with NGOs. Uh, the, the staff of IMF was very nervous about that. I, and I was relaxed because I was absolutely happy with what IMF were doing, like with all these conditionalities and discussions. We were in constant contact with their team who are covering Ukraine uh, and staying in Washington and doing all those recommendations. We are really happy when they're coming to Kiev for the last two years because of COVID. Not they just always communicating, asking whether it's true or not, and verifying information with us. But all other NGOs from other countries, they were so jealous about Ukraine that, come on, you're the luckiest. You're the only country where IMF having this attitude. Uh, why they're not doing the same in, in Philippines or in Sri Lanka or some, somewhere else? Said, yes. So nine out of 10 comments to those who are in the panel from IMF were negative. And I, I looked at everything. So I stood up and said, you know, honestly, I'm representing GI Ukraine. I'm absolutely happy with what the IMF is doing in Ukraine. The guy after the session, he shake my hand and said, thank you. You were the only guy who said the good stuff about us. Said, yes, because I have reasons, but you need different, definitely to think about how to spread this, your attitude to, to, to the other countries, not only about Ukraine. So, so there's so much there to talk about. I want to pick up on one aspect of something that I think Greta, you were talking about. I think Andre, this came up a little bit in your, your remarks as well. Um, and that has to do with the, the strategy that the, or the political strategy that those who want anti-corruption reform undertake in situations like the current one, which is so unusual. And, and let me frame it like this. Um, and I'll, again, talk about both the domestic track and the international track. So domestically, anti-corruption civil society organizations often will engage in collaboration or cooperation with the government, but they'll often play hardball, to use a, a, an English colloquial expression. They'll often be very critical of the government. Um, to attack the government, you know, naming and shaming, and not just the government, like oligarchs, people who are suspected of corruption, and so forth. So a big part of the 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 usual toolkit for an anti-corruption advocacy group and other advocacy groups is to engage in often quite aggressive and pointed criticism of the government and of and of powerful people. And I would imagine, I think Andre, you might have alluded to this in your remarks earlier, in a situation like this, when the country is under threat, there's more pressure for solidarity. Right, more more of a sense that you need to show support for the government in the face of this challenge. And even with respect to some of the oligarchs, I mean, I've seen the news. Some of these guys, these extremely rich Ukrainians, they're the ones who you know own the steelworks where you know defenders of Ukraine were were holed up. They're you know the ones who they, they've been trying to suggest that they're you know part of the the team. And so on the domestic track, I suppose the question is, how in a situation like this do you strike a balance between continuing to take that? that critical role to highlight problems and to highlight maybe individuals who are not contributing while at the same time not undermining the kind of spirit of, of solidarity that's so important when you're under threat. 
And then the international version of this, I suppose, picks up on what both of you were talking about with respect to conditionality. So under normal circumstances, oftentimes the international donor community will play hardball in the form of conditionalities. The IMF and especially, but other organizations as well, like the EU, played a very important role in pushing for anti-corruption reforms in Ukraine by threatening to withhold money um, if Ukraine didn't get its act together and, and enact certain reforms. I would imagine, I could be wrong about this and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm ima- I imagine it might be politically more challenging to take that kind of aggressive, you know, no reform, no money stance if you're talking about the need to reconstruct a country that's been devastated by war, right? Like if the international community says, we're not going to give you all this money unless you, you know, put all this information in an open format and easily accessible website, if Ukraine doesn't actually do that, I imagine it would be hard politically to say, actually, no, so, sorry, um, no money for reconstruction. So I guess, again, maybe I'll, I'll do, like as I said with my previous question, maybe ask each of you to address different aspects of this, the domestic aspect, maybe over to Andre and the international to Greta, although each of you should feel free to dis- discuss the other as well. I, I hope it's clear what I'm asking. So maybe Andre, first you can talk about, is it, it does it become more challenging in a situation like this? To, to engage in the same kind of pointed criticism, naming and shaming, public pressure campaigns and so forth in a wartime situation where these demands of solidarity, then maybe Greta, I'll ask you a little bit about the international, the international donor con- community and the, the, the more difficult uh, uh, posture with respect to conditionalities. Um, actually, Transparency International Ukraine was always balancing. Because uh, we always have, pro- have projects. In some of them, we are cooperating with the state officials. In some of them, we do not. So we're criticizing uh, the government. I don't know how, but this kind of spirit that we use all possible tools of cooperation, because even the criticism and hard criticism is also part of the cooperation and communication with the government. Um, we were the, the, the only NGO in Ukraine who actually were receiving the donor money developed uh, with other our allies, even within the government, the most innovative public procurement system, Prozoro, and then passed it for free to the government. We did it a few times. So it, this is an example when we were... Uh, like cooperating with our allies in the government, building the IT platform, which which then bring a lot of good to, to Ukrainians. But in parallel, the um, establishment of anti-corruption institutions was held, uh, was ongoing. And we were really criticizing and shouting a lot on the government and the parliament that doing the things wrong. We just really honest with everybody with whom we are communicating, saying that, come on, guys, we're ready to help you. We don't like to to criticize you because we are not interested in critics. We're interested in the moving forward with the reforms. If we're doing and you are doing everything right and uh, or a transparent or accountable, that that is fine. If not, we have full right to say what we think if it is uh, going wrong. Before that, we will try to, to communicate it to you. If you will not fix it, we go publicly. So we were always somewhere in, in, in the middle. Uh, regarding the reconstruction uh, in, in general, we also in Lugano um, announced the establishment of uh, the coalition of NGOs. 
But most of the people would think, okay, another coalition of NGOs, there is many of different coalitions happening every day. But our, our approach is a bit different. We, we develop the principles, of course, that should be some basic things. But our idea was to gather those NGOs, not only Ukrainian, but international ones, like Open Contracting Partnership, like uh, Basel Institute, uh, like open, open Ownership is also interested. And Ukrainian NGOs who were really doing doing some stuff, I mean, cooperating with the government, doing something for the state, not only monitoring and criticizing, and also to invite the state officials. And finally, this coalition was supported by Minister of Infrastructure, Minister of Economy, Minister of Energy, Accounting Chamber, a couple of state-owned enterprises. Yes, this is only, uh, they say that we support the principles of the coalition, like transparency, accountability, strong anti-corruption, like for all good. Uh, seems like nothing. But then when you, now I can say, come on, guys, you supported our principles. You issued a press release on your website. It's there. You said it publicly. So let's sit and think together how to do the reconstruction uh, more transparent and accountable, how to avoid these corruption risks. And now we, we have this idea that actually all the support that um, will will come to Ukraine need to be transparent as never before, independently on the source. I truly believe that every citizen of every country who will donate money or provide us a loan, wherever it is, had the right or had the right, and I'm sure that 99% of them will never use this right, but they must have a possibility to go online and to have a look how their uh, money is used in Ukraine. Because these people paying taxes, those state officials uh, actually approving uh, the donation of the grant to Ukraine and how the Ukrainians actually dealing with this money. Uh, they should have this possibility to do that. And this is our uh, one of our many ideas, because, of course, anti-corruption need, need the working in place, because only with transparency, it's not, not possible to... Um, to deal with those all those huge money, this is my answer when people ask us. Okay, you will we will give you the money. You will steal everything. Yes, this is a very high risk. That's why we need anti-corruption institutions, and we need a proper IT system which will allow you to see every move of every reconstruction project and who's financing it and how this money is used. Whether it's possible, yes, it is possible. There is an experience of the South Korea. There is an experience uh, within the Croatia, by the way, with uh, the natural disasters uh, which were happening. But you, we have opportunity to propose to the world something really new and unique, as we did with the Prozora and public procurement, uh, to show that the way how the projects uh, which need to be implemented in order to overcome the disasters which are happening in the country can be in the new way managed and in the new way reported to the general public. May, I mean, may I can just add, because the point that the coalition that we launched in, in Lugano made me think of a few things also in response to the international challenge. And and by the way, you know, I'm the first one to be always quite skeptical about these big international gatherings and what's the point and, you know, really should it be 1,200 or 2,000 or 3,000 people going to Lugano when there's a war at stake? But I have to say that, you know, for those things, like being able to launch the coalition, being able to really you know, have informal chats with these people who might still join on all sides. I think essentially, you know, it, it was definitely worth it for, for all those, for all those matters. And, and the other, the other point that I also just reflected on when, when, um, Andre was talking about, you know, how every taxpayer should be able to somehow see what's happening with their money. 
you know, no matter how directly or indirectly it's being donated. I mean, one thing that, you know, Ukraine really has going for it is they are incredibly good in digitalization. I mean, you know, I don't think my country, Switzerland, you know, could teach them anything. Uh, on the contrary, um, you know, we are really grateful. I mean, that sounds so wrong when I say it that way, but, uh, you know, we have a lot of IT specialists from Ukraine who are refugees in Switzerland. I can tell you they are doing wonders to our country and we are in a very wrong way benefiting from this war. It's terrible to say that, but I mean, basically the point being being made is I think with this capacity in, in, in Ukraine, there is a lot we can do. I think I also want to connect with the point of the coalition because ultimately, I think we got to be a bit careful that it's not one against the other. It's not the international partners asking from Ukraine that they should implement international, you know, anti-corruption reforms. It's profoundly in the interest of the Ukrainian government. Um, maybe not every single one of the, those members. Maybe there are those who want to want to benefit personally. I should hope uh, not. But I think we need to come away from this you against us or us against you. And that's also how under described the work of TI and, and how we work at the Basel Institute. And I think especially when you have coalitions, you know, there will be some international partners who will be in a better position to address certain points than other international partners. And if they really work together hand in hand, they can, you know, they can, they can also have a sort of coalition to, to, to promote that dialogue. I mean, the point is sort of funding for anti-corruption and prioritizing anti-corruption in a, in a, in a post-war reconstruction efforts in strange ways makes me, makes me think of discussions I have with donors when they say that our overhead is too high. And I tell them, if I don't get a certain amount of overhead on this project, I can guarantee it's being properly implemented. The risk is then with me and also with the misuse of your money. And that's, that's exactly the same conversation, you know, unless we have those safeguards, you know, that money will not only be lost, but we should also not forget that even when money is not lost, but invested because of corruption, it can be invested in the very wrong way. And that the, the costs that Ukrainian people will have to carry for decades, for decades in a situation where they've already lost everything is so incredible that they just cannot be shying away from, from bringing this constantly to the, to the forefront of discussions, no matter what. Great. So, so let me ask you the, the following question. So both of you have been involved along with colleagues um, in advocacy efforts, both domestically in Ukraine and with respect to the international community. And this is going to be a very long process, obviously. But I'm curious about whether you feel like at this point, the message that you're uh, advocating is being well received, uh, both domestically and internationally. And to the extent that there's resistance, to the extent that you have observed or can anticipate uh, resistance to the kinds of measures that you would like both the Ukrainian government and the international community to put in place to try to promote integrity and transparency and accountability with, with respect to post-war reconstruction efforts, um, what is the nature of that resistance and what do you think needs to be done to overcome it? Um, I, I, I think I will start. Um, the first thing which we need to understand that there is just a huge mess in, in, in Ukraine regarding the reconstruction, honestly, because uh, even regarding the planning for the reconstruction, there is a number of different councils uh, established. There is a number of people who are developing the reconstruction plan. Uh, even uh, our prime minister during the presentation of the reconstruction plan, uh, he said, this is only the draft of the reconstruction plan. And for me, it was obvious that this will be like that because it is impossible to develop a 
$700 billion reconstruction plan just in two months. In parallel, when there is a number of issues happening in the country every day, and for you as a prime minister or the president, how you can be sure that you can develop a proper plan when when <laughs> actually uh, the fight is still ongoing and the Russian rockets come into uh, whatever city it is. So you need somehow to manage the country now and in parallel thinking about the future. It's very tough. So there was no surprise. This is only the draft of that. Regarding the those ideas about the transparency and accountability of the reconstruction process, I must say that in Ukraine, as always, there is different groups of people. Some, one of them would say that, no, we are in the war. We just only need to think about the military needs. We do not need any reforms. The others would say, I know, let's let's wait for the reforms in the military, let's do some other reforms. And the most radical would say, we need all, all the reforms now. Uh, I would say I'm somewhere in the middle between this group, because I understand that, for example, reform of the Special Security Service of Ukraine, who is responsible for the counterintelligence and other things, is not probably the best time to do that, because it's still militarized institutions since the Soviet times. And that I think don't think that those 30,000, by the way, employees who work in there are ready for any kind of reform. Um, but if talking about the reconstruction, there is still people who say, um, no, let's, uh, Europeans must give us all money and we will decide how to use them. When I'm saying, come on, guys, this is the money of their taxpayers. It's impossible. They just gave it to the state budget. You can do with them whatever you want. Uh, yes, but they have to because we are protecting the European uh, values. Said, okay, you're protecting European values, not for the European, but for your country, for Ukraine. So <laughs> you need to think about such a value as uh, transparency and accountability to those who actually elected you and who are supporting you because the international community is heavily supporting Ukraine. So you need to show them that you're ready to be open and uh, ready to discuss whatever they want. Yes, sometimes there should be a number of discussions about the discussions, but this is not your money. So you need to fulfill as much as possible of their needs for to believe you because yes we ukraine proved that we are probably um, there is a joke in ukraine saying that ukraine do not need to enter the nato this is a nato need to enter ukraine so uh who who joins whom joins whom uh but we need to do lots of homework and i'm i'm sorry but i was as a ukraine as a probably not ukrainian but just as an expert let's say so i was Really unhappy with the list of seven recommendations which we received in order to have these negotiations about the European integration, uh, because most of those things were communicated by the civil society and international community for many, many years. So we haven't done our homework and then we were unhappy with the recommendations. When we do not do something, this always have consequences. So not only action has consequences, inaction also can have consequences. Um, so I think everything is in our hands, uh, as well as our freedom is in our hands and the reforms and the support from the international community. Of course, when we're talking about the money, we look at this, you know, forecast from the IMF, World Bank and other institutions that actually the whole world is going into uh, economic crisis uh, and it might happen very soon. Uh, there is a number of... Uh, um, things which influence in the decision of supporting financially Ukraine. But this is other things which do not really uh, belong to us or depend on us. We need to do the things which depend on us. Is anti-corruption institutions, 
and the transparency and to prove that everything will become uh, com uh, competitive and uh, according to some rules which will be agreed by everybody. That's what we can do. Other things depends not much on us, but if you not cannot even fulfill our own homework, how we can talk about the others. Yeah, I mean, I think I just I can really add only two two seconds on this one because Andre said it, said it all so well. I think personally, it's it's a bit early for me to really have a sense for how serious this is going to be taken by both the international partners and domestically. Um, I think the international partners are perfectly aware of it. How they're going to play exactly that delicate balance that you were, were pointing at before, Matthew, is 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 going to be uh, what shows it. I guess um, we didn't ask for the moon either in those recommendations that we we issued in Lugano between TI and us. And I think that's probably what we have to, let's be honest, you know, there will be some assets that will be stolen. There will be misuse of funds. It's, it's, it's inevitable that there will be. And perhaps one of the points that we can bring in here as well, I recently read um, a blog about this as well, you know, should we declare compliance issues um, when we don't have to. You know, so one of the things we should also discuss perhaps is how honest and transparent do we want to be when we're having challenges with implementing, you know, proper controls and monitoring over these reconstruction efforts. And, and there needs to be an agreement between the international partners and the Ukrainian government, and perhaps even in a coalition with civil society, not to shut each other off, but to say, would it be good if we had a clear agreement that we will talk about those problems when they come up, because if we don't, A, we won't be able to put better controls in place, and B, the problems will come out anyway. At some point, someone will know about it. And then sort of the PR disaster, if I can call it that, for Ukraine will be so incredible. And, you know, money will try to will start drying up so quickly that I think the damage done by not talking about the fact that it will be very challenging and that there will be money that will eventually at some point or other potentially be lost is, is actually the biggest risk we can also go with. You know, if we just blindly go and say, oh, well, anti-corruption will be at the forefront and it will be no problem whatsoever. I think they're really putting that that operation at great risk. We're almost out of time. I just wanted to ask one more question about a specific approach to addressing concerns about corruption, transparency, and, and reconstruction money that I know has been used in other contexts. I'm curious if you think it would be appropriate in this setting. And that's the use of a specially designated officer, an inspector general, for example, who would be tasked with overseeing uh, the spending of, of reconstruction money. As, as you may know, Although the circumstances were obviously very different in Afghanistan before it fell to the Taliban, there was a special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction. Um, there's a U.S. official who was put in charge of that in a domestic context. There are sometimes been special inspectors general created offices to oversee the spending of disaster relief funding and so forth. Um, I don't recall seeing in, in uh, hearing in this conversation or seeing some of the materials you've prepared that type of proposal. And I'm just curious about whether you think um, that that would be an appropriate kind of measure in the post-war reconstruction context or whether you think uh, the better solution, the more appropriate solution, hearkening back to something Andre said earlier in this conversation, is strengthening the existing Ukrainian institutions, the anti-corruption institutions, the, the public procurement systems and so forth, but, none, but having the money flow through those rather than creating some kind of a special domestic or international office or officer. Um, 
<laughs> I have a question to you, but I don't think there is a kind of a positive answer. Um, Inspector General, uh, working with those funds uh, directed for the reconstruction of Afghanistan, but we see the result with Afghanistan, right? Uh, and that, that that this work was not really successful if looking into corruption and a number of those stories when the officials of Afghanistan government were leaving the country with the money in their uh, suitcases. So um, this tool uh, was not appropriate, appropriately working in, as it, within the example of Afghanistan. Um, if talking about Ukraine, I was thinking about this tool, and this can be one of the potential instruments in order to avoid corruption risk or um, lower uh, the corruption risks. But um, unfortunately, in our country, we do not have such an, uh, like an institute of a general inspector in different institutions as it is in the, in the US. And in the US, there is no anti-corruption institutions which we have in Ukraine. So I think would probably, I would stick to strengthening the anti-corruption, existing anti-corruption institutions rather than, uh, you know, implementing and developing the new function within actually the whole country as uh, the inspector general. There can be kind of an inspector general on these bilateral agreements between the US and Ukraine in order for this person to oversee the spending which will be directed from the US budget directly. Uh, this can be a solution, but this is a matter of the communication between our two governments and ratification of any agreements. But internally, I think we need to work on uh, strengthening the anti-corruption institutions and they can do their work perfectly as they proved many times for the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I'm, I'm generally speaking not known to be a friend of creating new institutions because it's ever, it's always a short term, um, solution. And also the time it will take to set something up like that when you have existing institutions. We'd rather might make those stronger because that's a really sustainable solution. I think perhaps we can look at the function of an inspector general, not because of an institution, but what were the functions that this institution should have or had? Um, successfully or not in Afghanistan, and are they available in the existing institutional framework in Ukraine? And if there are elements of it that are missing, then perhaps add those because it'll also end up strengthening the institution. So not so much talk about the institutions, but about what functions it fulfills. I mean, I think essentially, if you look at the field, field efforts to prevent corruption in, you know, reconstruction efforts or, or post-war uh, situations in Iraq or in Afghanistan is also, those institutions didn't really have the teeth in many instances. I mean, they were ringing the bell, the alarm bell, along, you know, again and again and again. And we know now that nobody reacted to it. Why? Because of geopolitics, you know, ultimately. And that's what I was talking about before, you know. We need to be ready to look at the problems in, in the face. And we can have all the inspector generals of the world. If we are not willing to act on what they find, whether it's within the Ukrainian institutions or a specialist institution, then none of that is going to serve any purpose. So I think the bottom line is really we need to be ready to, to look the problems in the face when they come up rather than sort of talking about the institutions around them, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that that um, that message about the importance of looking these problems in the face, especially right now, despite everything else that's going on, is a really important message. And I think maybe a nice note on which to conclude our, our conversation today. Um, thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, your willingness to come on the podcast and, and share with our listeners a lot of the important work uh, that you're doing. 
uh, I hope uh, both of you, especially Andre, given that you're still in Kiev right now, I hope both of you stay safe uh, and your friends and family stay safe. Uh, we very much admire uh, the work that you are doing. Uh, and I hope that many of our listeners who have had the, the chance to learn from you on the podcast today will be able to, in their various professional capacities, uh, support the efforts to, to promote uh, the security of Ukraine and, and anti-corruption efforts in, in Ukraine and beyond. So so thank you very much. Our guests today on uh, Kickback, the anti-corruption podcast have been Andre Borvik and uh, Greta Fenner. Uh, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. That's it. Another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Kickback is a joint production of the global anti-corruption blog and the interdisciplinary corruption research network. Kickback is produced by Matthew Stevenson, Christopher Starke, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Niels Kubis. Special thanks to Amy Assad for editing and Kaihan Gorelka for composing the jingle. Until next time.